Hello and welcome to Ag Econ's podcast for Sugar Research Australia. My name's Ali Smith, and today I'm going to be chatting to Ag Econ partners Janine Powell and John Welsh about a very hot topic energy. Whether we're switching on the car, boiling the kettle, plugging in, or starting up a pump on the farm, power is something we all need. And money is something we all want to save. So energy technology is moving at a frenetic pace around the world, with European and Asian economies moving away from fossil fuels and encouraging more renewable energy sources. There are some genuinely good options available right now for irrigators looking to install solar energy on their farms. Janine and John are Ag Econ's agricultural economists and they've been hard at work crunching the numbers on what energy technologies actually pay to incorporate in with irrigation pump sites. And I'm pleased to say they join me now. Thanks for having us, Ali. Janine, can we start with the types of irrigation applications? What did you look at? So we tried to cover a range of irrigation applications. We looked at big guns, pivots, furrow irrigation. We also considered various water sources, so rivers, bores, channels and some shallow wells. We also did our case studies over a range of regions from the south right through the north. So we wanted to really cover off as many different combinations and scenarios as what we could. You've certainly covered a lot. I've had a look at your research and interestingly, going to those results, the application method and location did not really affect the feasibility. Instead, it was the utilisation of the renewable power, either from the pump or a feed-in tariff, that was important. Can you give me a snapshot of what components worked and when? Rather than novel, we were looking at commercially available componentry, ones that if people understood and looked at our results that they could action and go out into their local area and install something if they wanted to. We found that the application method wasn't as an important factor as what we'd originally thought. That basically just changed the amount of energy required at the site. The key driver of the economics was not just the capital costs, but also the ongoing operational costs. So when you combine those together, you look at an annualised cost of the per unit energy produced. In terms of capital costs, you had on one end of the scale diesel gensets, and they are quite cheap to get into, but when you've got to buy the diesel at at least a dollar a litre to put into it, this actually converts to energy at around 25 cents per kilowatt hour, and that's quite similar to what you would be paying for grid energy. Obviously, gensets may have a place in an off-grid scenario. And what about renewables? There's lots of interest in renewables. Solar was a standout in all of our scenarios as a solution. We also looked at wind, and wind has quite high capital costs. It's got a number of moving parts. Another issue with the wind is that in these coastal areas, which are often prone to cyclones, there would be issues with manufacturer warranties in terms of those wind, wind ratings. I am going to ask John more about solar being the standout in a minute, but Janine, how did battery power fare? 
We were actually surprised with batteries. We thought they would have been a better fit, but the load profile of an irrigation site means that it's quite consistent and there would require a lot of batteries to be able to fill uh, and meet those energy demands over a long period of time. So the cost of batteries and the amount that you would need is just prohibitive. Not only is it a consistent load when it's on, it's also off, can be off for a long time. So the seasonal nature of irrigation means that the sites are used potentially regularly and then could be off for months at a time. And so the batteries would be sitting there, a large capital investment sitting there unused for a long time. It really doesn't work for that situation. It's amazing that we can have batteries powering electric vehicles, but they aren't quite there yet as a fit for irrigators. John, I want to bring you in here because I'm really keen to know more about how solar performed. Well, of course, solar has its sceptics still in some sections, but it is mature technology now. The cost has fallen so sharply in recent years that two very interesting things have happened as a result, which has slowed uptake on farms. So firstly, farmers are pretty careful consumers and they seem to be waiting for the prices to hit rock bottom before they take the plunge. The second thing that's happened is the connection policies and feed-in tariffs, they keep changing. So people are generally not sure what works and when, which is why we were so keen to run this energy analysis for SRA. So solar was the best fit in most small-scale irrigation settings under 40 kilowatts, which fits with the majority of pumps in the sugarcane industry, mainly due to the ease at which this technology can fit around the ergon connection policy, which is the biggest hurdle to the economics in Queensland. What do you mean by fit in around the connection policies? Why are they the biggest hurdle? The connection policies in regional Queensland really are unique to the rest of the nation in that the transmission service provider, so that's the the maintainer of the poles and wires, is also the retailer. Whilst there is a regulator watchdog looking over the prices that the retailer sets, essentially we have a monopoly supply situation, which we all know leaves little or no room for any price-savvy consumer. So where this is evident with solar PV connecting to the grid is not having a market for feed-in tariffs which is excess power produced. So as Janine said, unless you want to have that equipment over 25 years virtually stranded, uh, not paying back principal or making any money, the feed-in tariff really becomes relevant in the economic modelling. So when solar plant is not going into the pump at all, in, uh, in Queensland in particular, for a certain size category, studies have to be undertaken, which are quite costly, at the user's or connection expense, and it's a user pay system. And that answer is assumed no in most cases for large-scale systems um, above 40 kilowatts. So that's a deterrent on a larger scale as a connection policy driver. It really does depend on the regulators in regards to setting that feed-in tariff on the regulator's attitude towards what price will be set. Tell me about the costs. So, yeah, the, the capital cost is is high with installing solar PV. The, the ongoing costs are small comparatively to, to other components. You do have insurance costs, some small maintenance costs such as cleaning and basic checking issues. But if we compare apples with apples, the annualised cost of solar over 25 years comes back at around $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour or per unit of energy, depending on mounting, of course. Roof-mounted systems are a lot cheaper than, say, a ground-mount system that needs to be wind-rated. But the hard thing with solar is we only have that $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour when the sun is out and the system is, is performing to capacity. $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour does sound cheap. With a home bill, we pay around $0.25 cents just to turn the lights on. 
John, maybe I should get you to explain the annualised cost again. The annualised cost, we kind of have to find a way to have a standardised measurement to compare systems across components. And annualised cost is simply bundling all the costs together over the 25-year life. So insurance costs, additional insurance costs that is, on most people's farm pack to, to keep this gear insured in case of a hailstorm, plus cleaning and other maintenance that pops up, plus the capital cost all divided by the amount of power that is generated over that period. And that's how we get our four cents per kilowatt hour or thereabouts. And that certainly has halved in, say, the last four years. But uh, because you're paying 25 cents at home, that has line rental charges factored in. It's pretty much the same as paying distribution costs on food or grocery items. It's the same as buying tomatoes from a supermarket with the price of those tomatoes at a retail level. All those distribution costs factored into that retail price. Whereas when you grow them yourself, you don't have any of those costs. So that's why there's such a big difference between the retail level um, of electricity and what you can essentially grow it for yourself. Yeah, makes sense. So we have solar PV as the most economic component, working best on a small scale. If an irrigator listening just wants to bite the bullet and make an investment, What are the finance options, Janine? Let's talk money. I like talking money, Ali. There are a number of ways that a farmer can get into a solar system. And essentially, they vary in terms of capital requirements, term, ownership, and the benefit that you're going to get from the system. But the way you're paying for your solar is not as important in terms of the entire feasibility as total capital cost, as well as the seasonal profile, how much you're going to use the system. So you've really got to do the numbers on if it works for you before you get to the point of how you're going to pay for it. So what's the simplest form of finance? Well, not surprisingly, the simplest form is cash and that is using either cash reserves or your existing lines of credits with your bank. You have immediate ownership and therefore you have immediate full benefits of the system. There are actually a couple of incentives through the government. There's the Clean Energy Finance that will give a 0.7% interest rate subsidy, which does help in reducing the cost of the installation. There is also state government incentives through low interest loans, and these are there to lower the capital cost of the installation and hopefully increase the uptake of solar. It almost sounds like money for free with those sorts of interest rates. Government must be very keen to see the transition to renewables. John, what were the other finance options? Well, the other two remaining options we studied pretty much involve a business relationship with a trusted third party to finance and maintain the equipment with some sort of sunset clause after a period of time when ownership will change from the third party to the farmer. So farmers would be familiar with machinery leasing. It's exactly the same with solar plant installs. Banks now view this equipment on their balance sheet just like they would a tractor or a harvester. So essentially the equipment is the collateral and leasing from a third party will incur retail interest rates and on occasions could be even double that of what they get from their normal debt facility. But the leasing loan will be off their balance sheet and separate from their existing existing farm mortgage, for example. And this can suit a lot of people's circumstances. So the premise here is the savings from avoided grid purchases are used to make the lease payments. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And it can take a little longer to pay back. But basically the farmer has to do very little from start to finish and lease payments are fully tax deductible. The one that surprised us most in our analysis is the Power Purchase Agreement or PPA. The PPA can work really well 
as it's cash flow positive from day one. So in a nutshell, the farmer installs the equipment and agrees to buy the power at a lower price. So that's saving straight up without a capital outlay. So the third party provider then manages the feed-in tariff revenue and the loan facility uh, internally at an agreed period of, say, 10 years before there's an ownership change. So eventually the farmer gets the option to assume ownership after a given period of time without any money changing hands in a cash flow positive position. And Janine, what alternative caught your eye? Going into the analysis, I just thought that cash would have been the best option because you can get the greatest benefits. But once I saw the results, I was quite surprised with the PPA agreements. Essentially, they do give an option for those where the balance sheet doesn't allow them to borrow more money. You can get into a solar and get some benefits still for no capital outlay. So whilst the key thing with the PPA agreement is there is a lot of fine print and the terms can vary considerably between agreements in regards to the amount that you'll be paying for the power, how long you'll be paying for it, if you're going to uh, gain ownership of the equipment at the end and if there is a, some type of balloon payment associated with it. So there's a, a quite a bit of fine print that you'd need to look at but there still can definitely be benefits. Yes, it does always pay to read the fine print. We just don't always do it. Tell me more about the downside of the PPA deal. So with anything, you need to really understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, Unfortunately, we have seen examples of PPA deals where there's been cheap and very inferior panels installed. And as the ownership has transferred to the farmer, it's also been where the panel and inverter warranties have run out, say maybe year 10. And what the farmer then has is a lemon system, which is just going to cost them money. So before signing any agreements, Of course, it is recommended to get accountant or lawyer or a specialised consultant to look through it and really make sure that you're getting a system that is going to work for you. You're right. Nobody wants a lemon. So, John, where can people go to find out more? We've just completed an energy portal on the SRA website with a whole bunch of information from our project. And you will find fact sheets, some basics on energy, measurement of energy, do's and don'ts for would-be purchasers looking to go into these systems. We have just drafted some very useful fact sheets. Well, we think they're useful fact sheets (laughs) on do's and don'ts. The solar industry has been characterised by lots of new entrants and at the other end, uh, some, lots of business have exited this industry as well. So it's quite a fluid industry and there are some checklists that, that we have put together. And there's also a webinar on the reports we've done in the first two years of our analysis looking at different application methods. We've written uh, reports as well. And there's also a host of other information related to irrigation on our AgEcon website. Sounds good. And I'm sure the fact sheets are great. Thank you both for joining me and I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's Ag Econ Energy podcast. This information is general in nature and not intended as advice.